0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au We're looking at the vanity of pleasure and possessions. Sound good? Sounds a bit depressing for a Sunday morning, doesn't it? Well, I want to walk us down a road um, and, and get towards some hope at the end, but we need to We need to deal with a text that is really real and confronts us. So we're going to do that this morning. Why don't you join me as I pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who um, speaks realness into our world. That your scriptures help us see a picture of what reality is like with our Bibles closed and with a closed frame of reference, without God in the universe. And we thank you that uh, you have gifted us with this book that confronts the cultural scripts and narratives that we inherit from the culture around us. And opens our eyes to see the real logical conclusion of a world that has no God a part of it. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to see this morning. Open our eyes to see. We pray that you would transform us by your spirit through your word. And we asked that you would make us more like Jesus. And we pray this in his strong name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I remember a number of years ago being at a a friend's wedding. We were, um, it was up on the Sunshine Coast. So we had traveled up there with a number of friends of ours. One of Tasha's really, really good mates that she went to school with. And this girl had recently become a Christian because she had met her, her husband. He was a follower of Jesus. She had decided that she was going to be a follower of Jesus but she'd been brought up in this really staunch atheistic family and she was deciding also to move to Queensland, a really, really long way away from her family. It was interesting, I was driving her mum and dad to the wedding ceremony and just listening to her mom kind of lamenting the fact that her daughter was moving so far away and she was saying things like, you know, she's changed so much in the last couple of years and you know, being a Christian myself, obviously seeing the journey that she'd been on. We'd been praying for her. Uh, and it was interesting just, just observing the wedding through the, the eyes of her parents. I'll never forget her dad got up to do the wedding speech at the reception. And, you know, obviously as dads do, they share all the stories of their kids growing up. And he kind of got to the end of his speech and he said, you know, the thing that my, your mother and I want the most for you is that you are happy. The thing that we want more than anything else in this world is that you are happy. And you could tell that there's a real sense of grief. Their daughter is changing. She's moving to another state, potentially having grandchildren in another state, being a long way away. And there's this real sense of grief. And yet there was something about a parent that could look at their child and say, it doesn't really matter as long as you are happy. Happiness is the social currency of our generation. Happiness, pleasure is the cultural life script that we've inherited. It doesn't matter the decisions that you make as long as you are happy, as long as you are pursuing some form of a career. It may not be the career that your parents have chosen for you, but as long as it makes you happy, as long as it is pleasurable. As long as the things that you are doing are fulfilling and satisfying, then that would be enough. That is the cultural script of our day. There's a quote from John Lennon. Uh, Everyone knows who John Lennon is, right? The Beatles? All right, good, good. Uh, That's really important. If you want to have any invested interest in music, you have to have listened to the Beatles. But John Lennon says this. He says, when I was five years old, my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I wrote down, happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment and I told them they didn't understand life. And we read something like, "You man, so profound. Obviously, you know, everything John Lennon says is somewhat profound and crazy at the same time. But you read that and, and our whole culture just wants to affirm that line, life Is about happiness. Enter the preacher from the book of Ecclesiastes and he is just going to trample all over that cultural script and narrative. And I think the reality is we all know that that's not true. Deep down, we all know that happiness and pleasure cannot be the ultimate end for why we live our lives. You've all experienced it. Right, you've gone on holidays and there's been incredible walks along the beach in the morning as the sun is rising and it's just peaceful and beautiful. You've had amazing meals all week. You've had the best wine. You've visited the greatest wineries. The sunset pictures that you have are incredible. And you get home, you upload them onto the virtual wall the art gallery called Instagram and they hang there and they're algorithmically shoved in front of people's eyes for a few brief moments so that other people can look at them and be envious of your holiday and then on Monday morning, how do you feel? I wish that holiday was a bit longer or man, I feel so empty right now. Is that it? A week in the Hunter Valley with amazing wine and beautiful sunsets and now I'm back at my desk with the same flickering light, the same computer, the same coffee mug? Is that it? We all get home from our holiday, our vacation, or whatever experience. You know, you go to that gig that you've been waiting months for, perhaps it's Bieber coming up in a few months' time, and you get back to your desk on Monday morning, you're like, is that it? Was that the thing that for the last three months, my heart has been yearning for or longing for? And now I feel this sense of like, I'm a bit empty. And you begin to look for the next thing that's going to fill the void. Well, welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes, because this is what the preacher will do for us. The preacher wants to walk us down a road of hope and help us see that at the end of that road is just a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. And last week he will, he did that with the idea of wisdom and intellect and knowledge. This week he's going to do that with, with pleasure and possessions. He's going to do it with work. He's going to do it with all of these roads of hope. And what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is showing us is that every single one of these roads of hope. You want to walk down this road, life under the sun. The end of this road is a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. Ultimate meaning, significance, purpose. The satisfaction that our souls yearn for is not to be found in any of these things. And so this morning, he wants to walk us down the road of pleasure and possessions. The quest that he is on is the quest of how to get happy. It's the quest of our age, our generation. He says this in chapter 2 verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure i will test my heart with pleasure to find out what is good his quest is to find if there is anything under the sun if there is anything in this life life that that phrase under the sun describes life with your bible closed life without god in the picture life as we see it with our eyes and he's going to walk down this road and test life to see if there is anything in it that satisfies his heart when it comes to pleasure and happiness and joy? Is there anything that will provide ultimate meaning and satisfaction? Now this is not the quest of some philosopher in an armchair or behind a laptop reading blogs about people who have pursued pleasure. This is the quest of someone who has lived it. He has experienced it. He has not he is not a, um, you know, the one thing that you cannot accuse the preacher in Ecclesiastes of, of being is living a sheltered life. Right? He, he lives life. This is not some Amish philosopher who has stood back from culture, observed from a distance, then come to his conclusions. He has been on the road himself. He is not sheltered. He's, a, you know, he's experienced life, as we say in the Christian circles. We say he's been working on his testimony, right? He, he has lived it. He's experienced everything and he does not withhold any of the desires of his heart. Realistically, in in Ecclesiastes 2, he's kind of of like um, the party monster love child of Charlie Sheen and Lindsay Lohan. Just, you know, just everything that he wants to do, he has done. He has not held back. If anyone knows what it means to live A worldly life, to live in the world, to party, to celebrate, to pursue pleasure. It was him. And this is his conclusion. He's tried all of these things. I want to walk us through seven things that the preacher has experimented with, has tested his heart with to see if there is ultimate satisfaction in the first is laughter. Come back to verse 2. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? Laughter is madness. Now the preacher knows there is a time to laugh. He'll say that. The very next chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there is a time for weeping and a time for laughter. He knows that there is an appropriate season for laughter. You've all heard the saying, right? Uh, laughter is the best medicine. Or those who laugh, last. Right? We know that laughter is good for us. Sometimes my second born will just say to me, Daddy, make me laugh. She just wants to giggle and she's got this like real kind of guttural giggle that happens that when she starts kind of kicks everyone off, else off. And after a while, sometimes we will be laughing so hard that your stomach muscles sore and your cheeks hurt and you've kind of got leaky eyes. And you know, anyone know that experience where you just kind of laugh so hard and then at the end of it, you're like, oh, that was good, right? And dolphins are rushing through your body. You're like, there is something great about laughter and yet the preacher also knows that laughter doesn't ultimately satisfy he'll say in in Ecclesi- or oh, sorry in proverbs chapter 14 verse 13 even in laughter the heart may ache even as we laugh it's an external veneer because deep down inside of us there is this ache that we feel this pain this hurt there is suffering laughter simply masks the suffering that we experience in the world. And yes, it may be a temporary tonic to the pain and the hurt and the brokenness of this world. Like one of the best gifts that comedy offers us is a distraction from what's happening in the Ukraine at the moment. But at best, that's all it is. A momentary distraction from the pain that we experience in this world. And so the preacher's conclusion is, it's madness. It doesn't ultimately fix our problems. So the next thing that he will move on to is alcohol. And you begin to see that these are very contemporary trials and pursuits that the preacher takes himself on. This is like, I don't know how old this book, it's an ancient book of wisdom and he's trying all of the things that humanity is still trying today. So he moves on from laughter to alcohol. There's a, a country western singer name, by the name of Tyler Childers and he has this song about a drunk preacher called Bottles and Bibles. And it's a terribly sad song. He's obviously grown up in the, you know, the Christendom of Southern, the, you know, the Southern American context where they all go to church but no one's really Christian. And the preacher can go home and get drunk and then preach his sermon on Sunday. But it, this is not the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, right? He's not the drunk preacher whose life is duplicitous. It seems at the very least he's content with tipsy because this is what he says he says I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly but my mind still guiding me with wisdom he cheers himself with mine but with wine but his mind his wisdom his he is still considering and testing the process of what this wine is doing to his heart now no doubt The preacher with all his wealth had access to probably some of the best wines that money could offer. Perhaps some even harvested from his own vineyard. His own slaves trampling on the grapes and being stored in vats that were of his own making. He potentially had the best wine that money could buy. But whether it's high culture or low culture... Whether it's a, a Penfolds Grange Hermitage or a goon bag, Both the sommelier and the drunk know the same thing. That meaning and satisfaction are not found at the bottom of a bottle. So he turns his attention to creative projects. Architecture, buildings, landscape gardens. Have a look at what it says in verse 4. I undertook great Projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. The preacher has built architectural masterpieces. He has designed homes, monuments to his prestige and wealth and significance and power. And it's not just one house. Did you see that? He built houses. Can you think of that? In the 21st century, That someone who has multiple houses. Man, they must be very wealthy to have multiple houses. I mean, Architectural Digest is killing to do a tour of his crib. You know, he... Hey, welcome AD, come into my Mediterranean palace and does a tour. This artwork came from Persia and, you know, the king of the Mesopotamian, you know, this artwork is like 3,000 years old. He does this tour with AD around his crib. That's the type of lifestyle that he is living. It's the great Australian dream. Not just home ownership, no, no. But buying a fixer-upper and renovating it yourself. By right, picking the tiles and the tapware and and designing it all yourself. Do you, you know there was a period of time where it was more expensive to purchase a renovator's delight than it was to buy a terrace that was like in good order? Because everyone wanted to to what? Fulfill the Australian dream of being on your own block and making your Pinterest wall come to life. That's the dream, and the preacher does it. He builds houses, multiple houses, designs them. And not only that, he has landscaped his yard. Right, I mean, just incredible. D- designer plants everywhere. I tried to like Google what, what are designer plants. I have no idea, right? I just got a couple of bushes in the backyard. I'm really struggling to keep my indoor plants alive at the moment. But he has landscaped his yard with designer on-trend foliage everywhere. Now, as you read this, there's this real subtle little echo to Genesis 1-2 to 2 here. The preacher puts himself in God's shoes. I don't know if you heard it there. It says there that he has planted, he has planted a garden. He has put fruit trees in his garden and he himself has watered it. He, he plays the role of God. He has planted a secular Eden, a paradise in his own backyard. And yet his conclusion is it's a garden with no purpose. Because in the end his house will crumble and weeds will start growing up over his designer garden. And someone else will come along and knock down his monument to his prestige and build theirs. And so he moves on from houses and the great Australian dream to money and power. Have a look at what it says in verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. The preacher has acquired anything that he wants. Sadly, due to his own passion for power, he has purchased human beings, men and women, slaves, the ultimate power play to have a whole host of people who can do whatever you want them to do at your beck and call. He has got more herds and more flocks than anyone else before him. Silver and gold. I kind of got this picture of like Scrooge McDuck diving off his little board into his like piles of gold and swimming around them like he is filthy rich. By worldly standards, he's a Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or one of the other entrepreneurs of our generation. He has everything that he could possibly ever want. There was this recent um, research that came out that said, actually, money does make you happy. Money does make you happy. And you're like, what? Hang on a sec. That's what the Bible says. What they found is that um, money, in terms of its ability to pull you out of poverty and stop you worrying about life circumstances, it does have the ability to make you happy. But only up to a certain threshold. And that threshold is, if you earn $75,000 a year, that's, that's the peak of the happiness that money can provide. Anything more than that, it actually begins to have a detrimental effect in your life. So sure, money can make us happy. Money can, as, as a tool to lift people out of poverty, absolutely. Money can change your life but only to a certain threshold. A threshold for many of us that we are well over. And the preacher has learned what modern research, secular research has told us today. That being the richest person on the face of the planet does not bring ultimate significance, meaning, happiness and purpose. And so his next pursuit is entertainment and music. Have a look at what it says in verse 9. Uh, so yeah, I acquired male and female Singers, music, surely music, arts, entertainment, that is what brings us ultimate meaning, significance, and purpose. I was listening to a, an interview this week um, with, um, with Zane Lowe on Apple Music with uh, Wynn Butler, the lead singer of um, Arcade Fire. And he was just talking about his relationship with music. He's like, I, my life would be meaningless without music. Yes, and, and right now I'm speaking to some of you in our church. You're like, yes, absolutely. If I could not listen to music, I would be the most depressed person on the face of the planet. Yes, it's a gift, of course. This preacher has got the best choirs that you could amass, armies of uh, choirs of singers, men and women singing whenever he wants, right? It's not like he can just pull out his phone and Spotify, whatever artist he wants to, right? You have to be rich enough to have a band at your beck and call, singers. And his conclusion is that happiness is not found there. And so he moves on to perhaps what is the pursuit of our generation, sex. And this is what it says in verse 8. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. He has tested sex to see if it would satisfy. He has a A harem, a whole household, a part of his household with second and third and fourth and fifth wives and concubines. Now, if Solomon is the true author of the book of Ecclesiastes, we know from 1 Kings 11 that Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Now, if you do the math on that, that's three unique new sexual partners every day for an entire year. And he hasn't even run out. I mean, he has lived a life that most rock stars would blush at. And yet his conclusion is, it's vanity. It's a mist. It's chasing after the wind. Actually, um, I remember chatting a while ago with, uh, with Brad Heap, who's on lights this morning. He was sending me all these quotes. He was reading the Moby, um, the Moby autobiography. He was sending me all these quotes from the... Autobiography. One of them I just remember this week. And this is a quote from Moby about his life. I actually didn't want to spend my life having drunken one-night stands. I wanted to sleep next to someone and feel safe. I would trade all of the parties and the vodka and the threesomes and the foursomes and the sevensomes for one moment of safety and comfort. Speaking quietly to someone I loved in the middle of the night. Here is the 21st century equivalent of the preacher. He has lived it. And his conclusion is, I would trade all of that for just one person who would love me for who I am. Now, it's not just the rock star lifestyle. You could equally conclude that the beauty of intimacy, of covenant, faithfulness in marriage, that isn't ultimately satisfying either. This isn't a playoff between, you know, the legalist and, you know, the party person. This isn't the older brother and the younger brother in Luke 15, right? This is the preacher's conclusion that when you take God out of the picture, monogamy or a rock style lifestyle, sex is not the answer. Here is his conclusion. Have a look at what he says in verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Most, the, the thing that's holding most of us back from pursuing our desires is a lack of opportunity. A lack of opportunity. You know, when, um, when police look at a, a crime scene, they look for three things. They look for motive, means, and opportunity. And what they say is in most crimes, the, the motive and the means are about 20% of the reason for why the crime occurred, opportunity, accounts for about 80%. The reason that we don't live like this is because we don't have the opportunity. We don't have the money. We don't have the power. We don't have the access to purchase all of the things to make our dreams come true. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. There is no one else who has walked down this road like the preacher has My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. When I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. At the end of his experiment, at the end of his test, at the end of his life, his conclusion is... All of these things that he has tried, sex, money, possessions, architecture, art, entertainment, music. It's vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. Now, he's not saying that in the moment it has no significance at all. And I think the Catholic theologian Peter Kraft has helpfully distinguished between what he calls short-term meaning and long-term meaning. Short-term meaning is, of course, laughter works in the moment. Of course, it distracts us for a moment from the pain and suffering in our world. Of course, wine makes the heart merry. Of course, these things have short-term meaning and significance. But let's get to the end, the logical conclusion of this experiment and look back on it all. He says, long-term, on the long view of things, ultimately, this is meaningless. It's like a chasing after the wind. It's a mist. It's a wild goose chasing, except there's no goose involved at all. It's meaningless. And it leaves his heart unsatisfied. Every single one of these pursuits has come up short. You know, Kendrick Lamar has arrived at a very similar conclusion about fame, and this is what he says about fame. It's profound. It says, one way or another, stardom destroys most people who achieve it. This is a cliche, one that is as old as Hollywood and the music industry, but it doesn't make it any less true. Listen to this. It says, imagine the disorientation that comes with becoming the one thing our whole culture looks at as the ideal. In the 21st century, self-actualization Validated by widespread affirmation is the closest thing we have to divinity. Fame makes the same offer of the serpent. You will become like gods only. No one can bear the weight of godhood. It gets to you. Even if no one else catches on, you know that you are a fraud. And at some point, you have to buy into your own superiority or you'll crack. Here is someone who, and I know some of you are like, Kendall Kramar is a Christian, I know it, he's a Christian, you see. (laughs) I I have no idea, right? But here is someone who is honest enough to look at the world that he is a part of. Honest enough to look at the journey, the road that he has walked down, the road of hope, of fame, and he arrives at the end of the road and he says, you know what, it's a cul-de-sac. It doesn't provide the meaning, the satisfaction, the ultimate purpose that we are looking for. You know, as we read through the book of Ecclesiastes over and over again, we will see that there are two things that short circuit us finding hope, significance, purpose and meaning in all of these pursuits. The first is death. If you keep reading through Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the preacher begins to lament what happens to all of his possessions when he dies. It's like, I've worked so hard to get all of this stuff. And then what happens? I pass it on to my next of kin, my heir. And what do they do? They squander it. It's meaningless. Death. Death short circuits this. And the second one is the law of diminishing returns. This this conclusion that he arrives to, the pursuit of pleasure is chasing after the wind. It's like trying to grasp for something that's just not there. Why is that? Because the pursuit of pleasure has this process of the law of diminishing returns. Every time you participate in something that is pleasurable, the next time your brain wants more of it and demands this process of like demanding dopamine from this activity to the point where you can engage in this thing and it becomes no longer pleasurable. The law of diminishing returns. It's the same with sugar. it's no longer pleasurable for us. Death and diminishing returns make us walk down this road, this journey to find that at the end, it does not ultimately satisfy. The cultural script that we live our lives on is a lie. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes, honestly, most people don't have the courage to admit this. The humanists don't. Probably genuine, true atheists might be courageous enough. The existentialist has the courage to admit that this is the case. This is like real talk from the preacher. Our cultural script is lies. My guess is many of you know it. And perhaps you feel it right now, like really acutely. Like you woke up this morning and your heart is aching. You walked down that road of hope last night and you woke up this morning realizing it's a cul-de-sac. And you feel the angst, you feel the ache. And before another six days convinces you that there is still hope on that road, I want to offer you something this morning. I want to offer you the words of Jesus, the promise of Jesus to live by a different script. You see, Jesus once met a woman who was on this road. She was a Samaritan woman. He met her at a well in the middle of the day. She was drawing water. And Jesus has a conversation with this woman. And he perceives her heart. You see, she had been pursuing pleasure. She'd been pursuing pleasure in the context of relationships with men. And she had burnt her way through five different marriages and the man that she was currently with, her six, was not her husband. And Jesus, in this conversation with this woman, the very thing that she's been searching for has eluded her time and time again. Her pursuit helped her realize that it was missed. It was a chasing after the wind. She could not find it. And so she went from relationship to relationship to relationship. And Jesus turns up at this well as she is drawing water. And into her and our desperate cry for meaning and significance and satisfaction, Jesus offers these words. Have a look. John chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water, the water in the well, H2O, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal Life. Jesus offers the very thing that our hearts are yearning for, are longing for, are searching for. And I promise you, you can walk down that road of hope a thousand times and you will get to the end of that road every time and realize that it is a dead end. But what if you saw Jesus standing at the end of the road and a promise of something that death and the law of diminishing returns cannot snatch from us? The promise to satisfy our souls. You see, we have been created to know and be known by the God of this universe. And until we know Him, until we worship Him, Until we experience His love, our hearts will always yearn and ache. Someone once said that we have a a Jesus-shaped hole in our hearts. He is the only one that can fill the hole. And it's an offer to us. Jesus promises to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. I want you to see that there is a powerful script that is shaping our world, shaping your world. And as much as the scriptures are shaping us, our culture is shaping us as well. Stories, movies, songs reinforcing this narrative that satisfaction and meaning is found in pursuing pleasure and happiness. Jesus is the only one who will absolutely, ultimately offer that for us. Everything else is a cheap imitation and fake. Let me close by reading this verse from Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The fullness of joy for all of eternity. That's what we want. That's what we long for. Fullness of joy. Joy without limits. Actually, I think that was an Optus advertising campaign a number of years ago. Joy without limits, right? What a lie. Thank you, Optus. Joy without limits is only promised in the presence of God forevermore. Fullness of joy forevermore. That's what we've been created for. That's what Jesus offers us. Just let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that um, you have placed really confronting books like Ecclesiastes in the scriptures to help us see the world that we live in, to help us see the lies that exist. God, we feel this. Like we, we feel the emptiness. We feel the meaninglessness of the pursuit of pleasures that time and time again leave us dissatisfied, leave us thirsty, leave us hungry. And I thank you for your son, Jesus, who has come to offer us the very thing that our souls yearn for. So this morning, God, would you lift our eyes beyond the narrative of this world to help us to see the beauty, the truth, the wonder of the promise of Jesus that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We believe this, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said, Amen.